0: Educating by sharing our From the Trenches preservation knowledge and our guests' expertise. Balancing modern needs while maintaining the historical significance, character, and beauty of your period home.
1: Today on the Practical Preservation Podcast, uh, we have Bob Yap. He's a preservationist, teacher, and consultant. Bob, thanks for joining us today.
2: It's absolutely my pleasure, Daniel.
1: So tell me a little bit about your background.
2: Wow. Okay. Well, okay. I am a Midwesterner, true and blue. I uh, was born in St. Louis and raised in Des Moines, Iowa. Uh, my father was a corporate executive. My mother was a feminist writer, <laughs>
1: um,
2: and yeah, which was interesting. Uh, she was... Uh, sort of a leftist, and my father was head of the Iowa Republican Party back in...
1: Oh, my goodness.
2: (laughs) And uh, together, they, they were some of the early founders of Planned Parenthood of Iowa, together, both of them. So it's yeah, an, it's yeah. that was
1: that was more more acceptable under the Republican Party than too. <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah. Oh, yeah. family planning was an idea. So anyway, right. <laughs> so we always lived in these beautiful craftsman style home, uh, the the house I grew up in, especially red tile, uh, Ludoisi, uh clay tile roof, balconies, brick. Uh, it, it it was a a great house. And my dad, being a corporate guy, was gone a lot. So when he would come home, he was a, a, an old house weekend warrior. Mm-hmm. And I would just do anything to go down in the shop with him. And right. when I was about five or six, uh, he said to me, you know, we don't own this house. And I, I started crying. And I said, well, are we moving? I don't understand, Dad. And he said, no, no, no. You can go down to the county and you can look it up. And we own the house there. But we don't own this house. And don't you ever forget it. It's our job to do quality work that lasts so the next family can enjoy this house as much as we right. love
1: it. Yeah. and yeah.
2: And, and that stuck with me. Uh, my mom was a writer, but she was also an antique dealer. So we were surrounded by classic uh, homes and uh, historic homes and that kind of thing. And so that was an inspiration. Um, my senior year in high school, uh, I had one of the biggest paper routes in Des Moines and it saved up a whole bunch of money, almost 10 grand. I was bragging about it it at the community theater because I was volunteering to help build sets. And a gay couple came up to me and said, you know, listen, everybody's telling us San Francisco's a safe place for the gay community. So we're moving to San Francisco. You have to remember this is 1974. Okay. And so it was a long time ago. And you guys keep, you know, you're bragging about all this money you saved up. Why don't you buy our house? And I'm like, I can't buy your house. I'm in high school.
1: Right. <laughs> and he's
2: like, they're, they're like, well, come out and look at it. So I drove up and here's this little house overlooking a park called Union Park, which I later found out was dedicated by Teddy Roosevelt. Uh-huh. Um, and it had a tuck under garage with a cross bucked door on it. Uh, uh, it had uh, a porch with casement windows overlooking the park and a little balcony above that. It was stucco on the first floor and cedar shingle on the second floor. And just had so much interest. And I went inside and it had all this woodwork in it that had like some sort of weird tiger striping in it. And uh, brand new, brand new lime green shag carpet and the plastic <laughs> rake. And the plastic rake was gonna get thrown in with the deal if I bought the house, right? Oh my
1: but, goodness. <laughs>
2: and uh, you know, the kitchen cabinets were original pine and they were in excellent condition. There was a built-in uh, uh, buffet in the in the dining room and beam ceilings and the and so it looked like somebody took a hammer to the hardware and beat it all up. Oh, and, yeah. You know, I I I, uh, I just was enamored with it. So we go upstairs, we get into a little scuttle hole in the uh, to get up into the attic, and there's a whole bunch of rolls of what looked like wallpaper over on this on the side of the attic. Oh, so
1: yeah.
2: we, they were all shocked; they didn't know that was up there. So we grabbed it, pulled it down, and we unrolled it, and it wasn't it wasn't wallpaper was the original blueprints oh, fun and when we unrolled it a, a catalog fell out and the catalog was Gustav stickley's craftsman home oh and the print the prints were actually signed by Gustav stickley
1: oh my goodness. Ordered
2: to build yeah so i'm like who's this guy right <laughs>
1: and
2: and preservation wasn't something I'd even heard of Right. So but so another buddy I, I had a big paper out and I, we're like, okay, so how do we buy this house since we're not even 18 years old? <laughs> so, so we, we'll sell it to you for 16,000. You give us 2000 cash down and you just, you just tell so you get it. right. That'll leave you eight, 10,000 you guys have to put into the house and you can sell it before you graduate. I'm like, cool. Yeah, that sounds
1: like a good deal. (laughs) So
2: so we bought the house, and being a good Iowa boy, I called Pella to come out and give me a bigger, all the windows. I uh, called the the, the aluminum siding company, because, you know, back then, the wider your aluminum siding was, the groovier you were.
1: (laughs) Well, that would go with your carpet. (laughs) Right, exactly, right?
2: And then, you know, we were going to, you know, got bids for, to replace the, the original cedar shingle roof was still on it.
1: Oh my goodness. From
2: 1906. Yeah. And, uh, it was, had some leaking by then. That was a pretty long roof. That was. Uh, So we got a three tab shingle bid and all this. We got all the bids together and put them on the floor and they were almost $30,000. Yeah. And we were in shock. So we went over and looked at the windows. And the ropes were broken. The putty was falling out. But we lifted them up, and there was a secret trap door in the side of the jam. <laughs> and there were these weights inside. And so we went to the hardware store and bought rope and putty. And back then it was only DAP thirty three, which is just garbage. Right.
1: Nobody It is. Um,
2: but but you know, and and then to fix them rot, we got we went to an auto store and bought. Bondo oh my goodness! Did you get bondo? At that time, there was no architecture. <laughs> Yeah. And there was no architectural epoxy in 1974 uh, that, that was readily available for um, anybody. Yeah. So, we we just dolled up the house. We took out uh, we, we bought a six-pack of beer. We pulled <laughs> back the shag carpet. I spilled beer on the floor and it started to melt the
1: finish. Oh my goodness. Like,
2: oh my god. It was so black you couldn't even see that what we all know was white quartersawn oak at the time.
1: Right. Yeah.
2: Uh And we wiped it up, and all of a sudden, you could see the beautiful floor. So we stripped the whole floor with alcohol that we got from a hardware store. Everything we did was pure preservation, and we really didn't really understand it. I had gone to the library, and the only thing I could find was this guy named Clem Labine had had this, like, eight-page, three-hole-punch newsletter called the Old House Journal. And um, that was about it back in those days
1: well and that was was in the early
2: days yeah 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 so and Clem became a friend over the years he's a good man so anyway um the we got the house done we called a realtor now remember we paid 16 for it and we had 10 in it including the down payment and everything and i I, so that was like 26 grand we had and i called the realtor i said do you think you could sell it for 32 she said, no, no, we're going to put it on the market for 82.
1: Oh, my goodness. Sold,
2: sold the first day for 84.
1: Oh, that's, and and in the early 70s, that was a, that was a lot for it a was house. It was
2: huge. It was yeah. huge. It yeah. was a great house. And it had, the people that bought it understood the provenance of Stickley. And all that. Oh, yeah. So we go to the bank to close, and the banker says, uh, guys, you're not old enough to sign deeds. <laughs> you got to go get your parents. So we went outside and we went oh oh no <laughs> because we never told our parents
1: oh my goodness
2: <laughs> so i go home and I, you have to remember my dad was like six nine and he was a corporate guy you know big gigantic yeah. huge man my Dad, you know mark and i bought this house over on the east side he says you did what you little liar, you told your mother you were going to the library and studying and going to prom and all that stuff, and you're over on the east side of town. You know, there's always that side of town, right? Right. <laughs> yeah, rehabbing some crappy old house. I stopped him, and I said, you know, we have a 26 in it and we sold it for 84, and he stopped? He put his arm
1: around me. <laughs> he, he, was, he was ready to be a believer.
2: <laughs> and, and he said, well, hi, what a fine capitalist boy you are. <laughs> So that was my first house and it, 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 and I, it's part of the reason I've never been in into overall. I do special restoration projects like at George Washington's Mount Vernon home. Right. I did a, a, some work on a Japanese internment camp in Idaho for the National Park Service. I don't like to compete with the private market. Um, um, so I being a historic property developer, a true developer, one that that doesn't have if I'm doing tax credits, uh i have no issues whatsoever because i usually do more than what the state right yeah
1: you're not you're not fighting with um, them to, yeah. no
2: no it's not flipping hgtv has bastardized uh, oh
1: my goodness yeah
2: uh, yeah it's so horribly
1: yeah.
2: um so i then found um an internationally known furniture maker named robert krebsbach and beg my way into a four-year German traditional German furniture making apprenticeship. and I did that. and then I you know, all the time, all the while buying historic houses and rehabbing them at night and on weekends. and um, so I did that for a while and then I started being the architectural writer for the Des Moines Register and you know they, then I started doing a, a syndicated column called The House Doctor. And then I started uh what was really interesting was that um I'm assuming you're still with me, right?
1: I am, I'm listening. (laughs) Because
2: I can't see you anymore for some. Oh
1: no, you're okay. I can see you and I can hear you.
2: Okay. So anyway, um the syndicator for the radio show, the house started, we started doing a, a syndicated radio show. And it was getting very popular. And I was on a lot of stations and the syndicator said, you know, you really should do a video. Cause this is radio. Take the top 10 questions that people ask you and do a video. I said, I don't know anything about video. And I did that with my wife, Pat, who uh, is uh, the, the person who keeps me from being a homeless stew bum in an alley downtown.
1: <laughs> <clears throat>
2: and um And so we did it. And then all of a sudden I get a call from PBS. We love your pilot and uh, we'd like you to come out. to you and talk about a national show? And I'm like, what pilot? I had no idea what they were talking about.
1: Right. Said, <laughs> this, well, was, this was not your sizzle reel.
2: <laughs> so it was unbelievable. I'm like, okay. So after I after I wet myself and changed my pants, I got on a plane. And I went out to D.C. and ended up getting an agent and all this different stuff. And so we started the show in 1996 about your house with Bob Yap. Uh, Our primary underwriter was the National Trust for Historic Preservation. That's our very first underwriter. But even that was a little bit of a debate. There was a debate at the National Trust well you know preservation is an exclusive club and this guy's kind of a plain spoken midwestern guy and so half the board was like i don't think so and the other half was like yeah we got to do this because if if we don't get a practical preservationist like bob and start really doing this and this is dick moe speaking who used to run the trust um you know the average old house owner is going to take preservation away from us if we don't franchise them into the process. Right. This is an opportunity for us to get in on, on the ground yeah. floor for that, because this old house, you know, God bless them, but it's always been a million-dollar fantasy show, and it didn't have a right. lot of uh, 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 application to the average old homeowner. Right. So our show was pure preservation. Um, It's on uh, YouTube now, I'm putting it all all up there. I own the uh, the rights to the show, and um, it's uh, about your house with Bob Yap channel. So people can go look at that. Um, And the show did really well. And unbeknownst to me, PBS was doing Nielsen ratings. And I was getting two million, two million plus people a week watching the show, which was, I was beating this old house in the ratings, which really ticked them off apparently. (laughs) they're like because i traveled all over the country so if i was on a roof showing how a slate roof was being done in the midwest the next shot was me on a roof in seattle and the next shot after that was me in cape cod right
1: so show, um, and that that really does help to show the regional differences
2: right and we were even yeah. able to talk about ranges and costs based on what area you know you're right percentage higher or whatever yeah and in then in the, in the youtube uh, um. That Now that we put them on YouTube, we've actually updated the pricing. Uh, for
1: Oh, uh, have you? That's great. Yeah.
2: yeah. So <clears throat> that was interesting. So PBS happened, and uh, we did that for four years. And in the end, one of our major underwriters came to us and said, you know, this is the most amazing show, uh, home room show we've ever uh, uh, sponsored. We sponsored this old house. We sponsored Martha Stewart. And all these other shows and, and nobody has the ratings that you're getting and, and repeat and watches and, and and the reruns and all this and i'm like wow i'm really glad you're happy and they said but there's a problem and i said what? well you're a preservation show you know the guys at this old house you know uh, they understand the sensibility of, 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 of reaching out to the remodeling industry as well as the preservation and i said look the show is underwritten primarily uh, up front uh, by the National Trust. It's right. a pure preservation show. It has been for four years. It's popular because of that, in my opinion. Right. It's
1: popular and they because of that. Well,
0: yeah.
2: that's right. Yeah. And this big hardware company that was putting up half of the $2 million a year said, well, we need you to start promoting vinyl siding and vinyl windows on the show. Oh, because my goodness. Our, half our dealers sell those products. And I'm like, well, that's <laughs> not going to
1: happen. No.
2: And I walked, I walked away. I walked yeah. away at the very height of the show,
1: yeah,
2: and went out on the road and started doing hands-on workshops uh, all over the country, sort of like a circuit rider, which I still do today.
1: Yeah, yeah I and I, I that was that was probably that was the right decision in my opinion, but it probably was not an easy decision. I would I would assume.
2: It was not. It was not an easy decision um, because you know I was getting to millions of viewers, and right. um, and that that has a lot of value because I've never been in this for any other reason that I think it's it's the right thing to do.
1: Right. Well, and and you're able to reach people that maybe didn't know there were other options, and that's yeah, that's yeah. that's a huge platform.
2: And start dispelling the myth that historic preservation right. is is so expensive. You see, yeah. so I, Don Ripkema, Donovan Ripkema. Mm-hmm. Is a, the yeah. bottom him and he and I talk a lot and so one of the things I took a look at was uh, from a data standpoint I, I just finished my 163rd restoration uh, uh, an 1854 uh, slave house here in Hannibal and um and that's direct ownership partnerships uh project management planning all, uh, you know I've right. I, I owned every one of those but um and I went back and tracked, you know, one of the things Don asked me at a conference where we were both speak he said, you were tracked. how much labor went in, into these projects? I said, well, I keep really great records. So I keep these, these, uh, school notebooks uh, probably 10 or 15 per project and, and then all the accounting stuff. So I, it was a slow right. winter and I went back through everything and I'll be uh, gone. So 71.6% of all the costs of my rehabs have gone to labor.
1: I can believe that. And,
2: yeah. Well, and and, and and if you look at new construction, uh, labor runs about forty percent.
1: Yeah, yeah.
2: And and so here we are, uh, not using a lot of new materials compared to new construction, which mm-hmm. you know just the, the 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 energy used to make new materials far as far exceeds the energy that it costs to make historic materials. Right. So, we, and, and the transportation costs and the pollution and all that kind of thing. And so the embodied energy in, in these houses uh, is is labor. So if you want to create jobs when times are down, right. you don't you ramp down preservation, you ramp preservation up.
1: Right, which, yeah.
2: Which was a huge disappointment for me. Uh, you know, I, I was a big supporter of, of Obama, but, but he was not a very preservation-minded uh, uh, president. Right and gave tax credits for putting in vinyl windows he gave tax credits for cheesy aluminum storms and we did all the data and went to the uh, department of energy and said look we have all the data to show this and that and this and that And they still wouldn't do it so it's just it's it's interesting
1: so yeah and it it's hard to because i i being home some this winter you know in the middle of the day and having the having the um seen the commercials for all the replacement window companies. You know, if your windows are more than 10 years old, you need to replace them. I mean, it's really hard to, to work against that, that messaging that is just constant bombardment. Right. <laughs> in, two, a, in, 2000, it, process. Yeah.
2: in 2019, uh, the replacement window industry uh, was about a $9 billion industry. So you start to extrapolate that out, and and, uh, being conservative, that's about 112 million window sashes in the dump every year. Right. And what's fascinating about that, and this has changed, this percentage has gotten higher and higher over the last 20 years, but it looks like about half of those, about 56 million of those windows are less than 20 years old.
1: Oh, I can believe it. Yeah. I've seen so.
2: So let's replace our windows with something that doesn't last as long as high-quality carpeting or a three-tab shingle roof.
1: <gasps> right. Yeah, and and keep replacing them so you're in that cycle.
2: That's right. And so okay. the industry now, the industry, the window industry now understands this, and they have literally told the, the trade organizations which I belong to if they knew if they stopped. <laughs> and it, if right? they
1: check but their list, they, you, maybe you should join under a different name. <laughs>
2: What, no, nobody's put a hit out on me yet, That I'm <laughs> uh um so they're encouraging window manufacturers to market to a fifteen to 20 year window uh as just normal everyday life.
1: That's just what it is, yeah
2: That's insanity. It is, That's one it of is. the biggest consumer ripoffs in uh, in the history of, of home yeah. improvement.
1: It's and they're and they're rip-off. and they're not and they're not um, and, and those are not the low end because there's a whole range of a whole range of of replacement window options and those aren't That's even right. the low end options <laughs> that are doing that.
2: Well, one, one, one thing I have uh, that has worked well is that I, I like I said at the beginning I don't compete with the private market I, I, I try to because I do a lot of third party consulting
0: mm-hmm. and I give
2: a lot of advice and I teach I have a school and all this and I don't want to compete with my students and all that kind of thing um, but the uh, oh I, I can't remember what my point was but oh, that's the, uh, okay. <laughs> yeah yeah well you know when you're 63 you have those moments I guess maybe <laughs> I, I, sh- I shouldn't put uh, uh, lead dust in my cereal in the morning
1: oh no yeah <laughs> i was um i uh so you you mentioned your school so are you i'm sure that you've probably had to well, i, I your...
2: remember i remember oh, what yes. it was okay
1: so,
2: so because i don't compete uh, i have a good relationship with 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 preservation contractors all over right. the country that do yeah. a variety of work everything from historic roofing to windows to porch restoration all these different types of things Well, one mm-hmm. of the biggest issues with in, in communities across the country that have a preservation ordinance and the local di- uh, where the people have to come and get what, what we typically call certificates of appropriateness, which oh, okay. I, I think the word appropriateness should be <laughs> banned from preservation uh, uh, because it's too subjective. So I, I encourage all okie dokiness. Right. But I don't know. So anyway, what i' what I've developed is the historic preservation cost comparison tool. the trust and the Park Service put up some money to do a, 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 a one oh, in Kansas, very cool. to do one in Kansas
1: mm-hmm. and it went
2: really well and then they gave me permission to, to, to keep it so I, I placed it in Colorado I've got uh, you know uh, Pennsylvania's checked in with me about the possibility of doing it in their communities and the idea is, is that I take That I find the region that people are willing to work in around that, like take Harrisburg for example. um, Right. To take the region that people that contractors are willing to come into that area from. If if I were to do one there, then I would I would talk to them and they would go, Oh, it's you, Bob. Okay, you're not going to like compete with us. I'm not going to out who you are with your pricing, but they're all willing to give me their pricing because they know that I'll protect them. And then I'm able to come up with an average of uh, a range of what it will cost for any number of things, whether it's replacing uh, or or repairing for uh, uh, three and a quarter inch uh, tongue groove porch decking, as opposed to Trex materials, whether it's uh, vinyl siding, as opposed to painting, uh, whether it's window restoration, as opposed to replacing windows, all these different aspects, as well as downtown main streets. So the bottom line is is that in almost every single case, preservation costs
1: less, right? Yeah. especially people, over the, over the long run. If you're looking at the embodied energy and and the longevity of the of the material and the and the um,
2: that's right. Yeah. But I don't want to put us in a position where we're competing against something that's that, that's that's a false equivalency.
1: Right, I agree. <laughs> uh,
2: because yeah. what we do is we repair. Things that have been in service for 100, 200 years, sometimes uh, right. for another 100 years, and that puts us in the he, at the head of the environmental movement.
0: It, literally,
2: literally, preservation created without even knowing it, the environmental movement. And so we have all these organizations like the uh, lead and all this kinds of stuff. I mean, you know, and what I want to say to these people is, yeah, whatever. <laughs> all, Follow preservationists, and, you'll, and, and, and you will be the most environmentally sound organization that there is. Right. Get away from preservation, and, and we start to lose all the embodied energy. We start to lose everything, and it's just craziness. So. Right.
1: No, I, I agree. So um, you've talked some about the, the work you do. I'm, is the, I'm sure you're, you're not teaching in-person classes right now, or have you started again?
2: We start back up, believe it or not, on June 26th. We have okay. Rhonda Deeg, nat- Rhonda Deeg is a nationally known uh, stained glass artist who's going to come in and teach a three-day class on uh, both making and restoring stained glass windows. Uh, I didn't know, I had to cancel everything this spring. Right. And our bed and breakfast here, uh, we have a seven-room bed and breakfast, uh, we had like 72 cancellations in the spring. But it's funny, now things are starting to come back. Missouri is, uh, you know, never has believed in government. I can't believe (laughs)
1: that
2: Hannibal is a fabulous little town. And on the Mississippi River, we're all river rats, you know. Um, But people are signing up. So I have uh, a steam glass in June, but the July window uh, preservation uh, and uh, weatherization book is almost full and that is my 2020 season starting at the end of June.
1: Okay okay very good very good and we'll make sure we have links to that on our site when we post the post the uh, podcast. So um, and I know you've kind of talked about your consulting is there anything else that you want to share about the work you do?
2: Well I do a lot of different things so I train historic preservation commissions so I come in and I do. That's what I did for the state of uh, uh, Pennsylvania. Yeah, I'm pretty training. sure
1: I, I went with my mom because she was on the historic commission.
2: Yeah. I do that. Um, I I do consulting. I right now I'm a, a project manager for the restoration of a clock tower on a county courthouse in southern Illinois. I wrote all the, I write all the existing conditions reports and then all the specifications for projects all over the country. Sometimes I get asked to do limited project management this one in illinois is close enough that i can run down there if i need to so right and that you know so i do uh, quite a bit of that i do some special restoration projects like i was saying uh, earlier um and uh the school and i do seminars classroom seminars as well on a variety of uh, everything you can think of in preservation and uh, I just I just do a whole bunch of different things and when you're self-employed and you're in preservation you better be diverse right Uh, because as things uh, when this all came down COVID I had several special restoration projects scheduled for the fall and all of my uh, traveling uh, workshops and seminars got pushed to the fall so I brought the special Conservation projects up to now, oh, yeah. so we could stay busy and keep my, my and I have a full- time apprentice. I've always run an apprentice. I did okay. an apprenticeship, and so i I feel it's really important and uh, kept him working. and uh, so yeah,
1: yeah, very, very good. and I, I I think that that apprenticeship model is the fact that that in Europe, they really have kept that going. I think that's something that the trades need to do. Right yeah.
2: and they start to identify people when they're young right I mean some brilliant think tank in the late sixties early seventies decided that everybody should go to to you know a four year college right and, and that's that's absolute insanity yeah. um I mean my mission has been to save the uh, the traditional artisan trades in this country in any way that I can and to uh, implore uh, young people to get involved when I got to hannibal um I noticed we bought this big, gigantic 8,000 square foot uh, 1859 Annabella mansion that was slumlord uh apartment Oh, goodness.
1: Building. Yeah.
2: And, and we start uh, restoring it. And uh, I noticed all these 14, 15 year old kids walking the street during school. So I go out to the <laughs> yeah. superintendent. Yeah, I went out to the superintendent. I said, What's up with that? And she says, Oh, Bob, this is Hannibal. Those are our Huck Finns.
0: Oh, goodness. Uh, like, <laughs>
2: So what does that mean? She said, well, they've all dropped out or they're almost to the point of getting kicked out. They're in the juvie justice system. Their parents beat them. They come from those, you know, girls are raped. I mean, it's all these horrible things and there's nothing we can do with them. And I said, well, that's some bull. I don't know if I can swear. or not. You
1: can say what you want. (laughs) That's
2: That's some bullshit. I said, and And we're going to, I just started up the Belvedere School for Hands-On Preservation here for adults from around the country. And I said, you're going to start bringing contract with me. You're going to bring me all those kids. We're going to get them back in school. You're going to bring them to me in the morning on a bus, and then you're going to pick them up around lunchtime, take them back for regular classes. And
1: we're
2: uh, going to teach them historic preservation trades, half girls, half boys. And they just said, instead of saying, well, here's why we can't, and here's why we can't, they said, we we have to make this happen. This is perfect. Yeah, yeah. So in six years of that program, we graduated 160 kids that would have never graduated from high school. Oh, that's great. And taught them yeah. the trade. And some of them will go into it, some of them won't, but they'll know how to take but care it. But
1: sk- they have a skill. They have
2: a skill. Yeah, yeah. So I've taken that model, and I've, I've – uh, I set up historic preservation trades programs around the country as well. I write, I do come in identify the stakeholders. I work with the local people. Um, I, I help write the curriculum. I help figure out what equipment and facilities and restoration of all that. It's, it's a turnkey thing that can create a historic preservation program in just about any community.
0: Oh, that's,
1: yeah, that's really helping to, to keep, keep the, the trades going and, and, and pass those skills along, which is, is very important. So um, what, what do you wish that you know now that you didn't know when you got started?
2: I wish I had understood just how much preservation represents mm. environmental
1: right.
2: uh, soundness. it didn't take me too long to figure it out but i i think that uh there are a lot of people in the business and a lot of people coming into the business that know it and and what here's what's fascinating to me Uh, we did a uh, i i was one of the founders of the window preservation collaborative which does uh, Mm, testing testing of windows and that kind of thing and then we I uh, co-wrote and co-edited with John Leake uh, the the Window Standards book, which is being used by architects and shippos all over the country. And the uh, we, had oh, a window sum, we, had, we had a window summit. We uh, had a window summit in about I don't know sixty to eighty. I can't remember exactly. People showed up, and half mm-hmm. of half of them were women, yeah. and over half of the people that came were millennials. Hmm. Um, that was, uh, I was in tears uh, yeah. because I have been working so hard all my life to try to make a dent in this and get p- younger people involved than mm-hmm. they are, and they're coming in in droves.
1: Yeah. That's they, great. Yeah. You
2: know, they're fantastic. And, and, and this is so sexist, but I got to tell you, when I train guys and, and women side by side, the women yeah. are way better.
1: Than them. <laughs> my, my dad always said that too. He said that there's more detail oriented. But, I don't
2: know. Um, I don't know what it is. But, <laughs> but, I, but
1: think, yeah. I think
2: it's also listening skills. I think it's listening
1: skills. <laughs> yeah.
2: The guys uh, are, that, that sign up for my classes, I say rate yourself on a one to five basis. Five being the most skilled, zero being the least skilled. Are they all fives? And the guys are all fours and fives. <laughs> and the women, the women will come in and go, oh, you know, I'm a one or two, maybe a three, yeah. or, and at the end of the class, you know, the guys are like, "Oh gosh, Bob, well, maybe I wasn't too." You know? <laughs> I, I
1: have I have noticed that working working in the industry for you know twenty years that <laughs> that there are oftentimes men do inflate <laughs> their their skills. Yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah,
2: you know, Allison Hardy uh, founded oh, the uh, Window yeah. Preservation uh, yeah. uh, Alliance. Yeah. Um, you know, you just have you know uh, Catherine Brooks. Yes. Um, it yeah. is like one of the, uh, one of the great promoters of preservation and is a distributor for, uh, infrared heating devices from yeah. Sweden, which we all use now. And, uh, it's just, uh, there's just a lot of good things happening. It makes me very, very pleased. And I'm, I'm as active today as I've ever been. I was just next door, uh, putting up, uh, African mahogany beadboard on some walnut cabinets I made for this, uh, loft we're doing in a, in a so every, I can't get away from it.
1: <laughs> so do you, Um, I guess you kind of talked about some of the things that you're seeing in preservation. Do you see any trends or challenges that, that, or do you feel like?
2: Um, well, I think our biggest challenge right now is, and it's been a challenge for me. It's something that I've tried to work with all my life is to bring people of color into our movement yeah. more so yeah. where they feel a sense of ownership in their communities. It was interesting. I, at one point in my life, I actually did political talk radio. And mm-hmm. I was having a conversation about, um, and, and, I, and there aren't very many liberal talk radio shows.
1: There are
2: I, <laughs> I was one of them. And we're talking about central city neighborhoods and turning them around. And a neurosurgeon, African-American neurosurgeon, called up the show and he said, look, Bob, we grew up in those neighborhoods and we're not moving back. <laughs> And I, and I, that was a moment for me. Yeah. I'm like, okay, so how do we do this? But I think, you know, with everything going on, black lives do matter. And right. I think it's very, very important for people like me who undeservedly uh, constitute one of the most privileged class of human beings in the history of the world, which is white males, which is just, we, we just, and we, we, that 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 uh privilege by buying kidnapped people and, and, and abusing oh, them yeah. and enslaving yeah. them and it's just horrible so we we have a lot of work to do and it's not just talk we need to be sitting down with police departments and having conversations about this about central city neighborhoods and community policing because turning them around is really important no, and and men, is, yeah yeah, it,
1: right. yeah yeah it is i agree with you and i that's something that we, we talked about, um, as a, when, at, when my parents were, my parents retired uh, a few years ago in the business and we talked about, you know, how a lot of the back to the apprenticeship, a lot of the the trades were passed down, you know, to, um, you know, through families, but also I'm, I'm reading a book um, right now uh, called Northern slavery or slavery in the North. And, um, they talked about you know, most of the most of the enslaved people in the North were very skilled tradespeople. But as soon as they were, as soon as the abolitionists came in and freed them, then they said, "You can't work in those trades anymore because we don't want we don't want um, people to we don't want you to compete with the with the white people."
2: Well, uh, that's a fascinating thing. So, so uh, Hannibal was a, was a Confederate town. Oh yes, and of course Mark Twain wrote all about it, um, and the. Uh, Almost everything built before and during the Civil War in this community was built by uh, artisan uh, trades uh, enslaved people
1: right.
2: and men uh, specifically. And uh, the population of Hannibal was like close to 30% enslaved people until the end of the Civil War and then it went down to like
1: 1%. Right.
2: And I grew up in Des Moines, Iowa, which is north of here about mm-hmm. four hours and And Des Moines, which was an abolitionist uh, community uh, uh, very progressive for the time, and um I grew up around all these african American artists and tradespeople that's interesting and it is fascinating and I'm like so I you know before I get out in the real world i I just assume that's the way it is in every community, right. and it's not and it's not and um so we're starting to do some research to see if maybe some of these Hannah billions, uh, actually yeah. ended up in Des Moines. So, yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah.
2: yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. And, and, you know, more and more people are coming in. Jim Turner was a former student, student of mine, oh, yeah. uh, who's a, a buddy and, 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 and he's really done really well in the business and really uh, loves it. And has uh, 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 has mentored a lot of young people. So yeah. that's good. It,
1: that's, and, and that's important. And it's important to have people that every and and I think just in general we all need to recognize that we have this shared history and once we start acknowledging all of it then we can you know move forward together rather than you know just say no oh, it wasn't me we we don't need to talk about this <laughs> right right yeah, right. So. yeah. It's,
2: it's, it's it all it's all tied together it in, is. in so many ways and and uh, the preservation movement in America is one of the most unique movements. In the history of this country um you know really started out in the late 60s early 70s in in a significant way i mean the ladies uh restored george washington's mount vernon in the the mid 1800s that was probably the first restoration uh, of anything iconic that we knew of
1: right
2: Um, and it's an honor for me to work out there um but the uh so Preservation is a group of varying types of folks: um, men, women, uh, people of, co- of color are coming into right. it more and more, which is good. Um, people that are conservative, people that are liberal, people that are moderate, and we all come together because we all understand that that keeping our built environment is uh, uh, also. Uh, teaching the history of who we are and where we
1: came from. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah, yeah, that's one of the other points in, in, in the book that I'm reading is that a lot of the, the places where slavery occurred in, in the North were not, they were not either. They weren't, they're not acknowledged. They're still here, but they weren't acknowledged or they weren't saved. And so therefore, you know, there was this collective of not remembering, you know, it was just in the South, but it wasn't. It was all throughout the whole country. And, and, ha- and, and as a collective memory, you know, it, it, if you don't have those places and those places don't stay, you do start to forget. Because, you know, the people who had direct experience are not, are not here to tell us about it.
2: Uh, and, and we've embraced, you know, we we've done as much research as is humanly possible to find out about the slaves that lived here at our place, the Belvedere, which is actually the the, the Alfred Lamb House on the National Register, and uh, um, and we've named rooms after the slaves, but we only oh, have their yeah. first, we only have their first names, so you know it's like Henry's room,
1: right.
2: that kind of thing. But on the backs of the mantle, so the house was built in 1859, and there there's The mantles are all sort of Eastlake looking. Hmm. So I thought, okay, somebody replaced them probably in in the 80s. Not true. I took them off when we were restoring to get them reattached more properly. And and they're signed on the back, Henry. Oh. 1859.
1: Yeah. So I'm like, how
2: can that be? So I go up in the attic and I find a magazine from England. It's sort of mouse-eaten. Yeah. But it has a dog-eared page. I open it up and there's a little article with a couple of drawings of this young kid in England named Eastlake who was building some interesting things.
1: Yeah. Oh, that's great.
2: So did Mr. Lamb get the magazine, give it to Henry? You know, I, yeah. I fascinated.
1: Yeah. There's a story there. <laughs> <Wait>. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Very good. Okay. Well, is there um, anything else you wanted to share that we didn't have a chance to cover?
2: Well, um, I think, you know, my motto has always been that preservation doesn't cost, it pays. It pays in so many ways. It pays in, 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 in community. Look at the Main Street program, one of the most right. successful preservation-based programs in American history. The preservation movement has made some inroads. We yeah. need to do a better job of incorporating the average old house owner into the process. We need to continue trying to do that.
1: Right. A lot of
2: property rights people feel that preservation is is a bunch of people that are going to take away their property.
1: Right, right. <laughs> but,
2: but in truth, preservation creates property, right?
1: Yeah, yeah.
2: And by being in a local district, the slumlord next door can't slap, remodel his house, and ruin the value of your property, whether it's a small bungalow or a big robber baron mansion like the right. one. Um, so I think that's important uh, for everyone to remember. Um, preservation is 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 for everyone. Yeah. And gentrification is not something that happens outside of big cities. It, throughout the country, right. there's more preservation going on in the Midwest than both coasts combined. And
1: really. Well
2: hm. people on the on the coast don't realize.
1: This. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Preservation has been used since the early 70s in, in the Midwest as a way to turn neighborhoods around and embrace the small worker cottage and the and the retailer's house and the banker's house, and the little grocery store in the corner, and not gentrify to the point, just get values to a reasonable level, instead right. of just, you know, slumlord levels.
1: But, right. Well, so and,
2: yeah. <clears throat> it's doable.
1: Yeah. And, and, and you want to, yeah, I, I struggle with that gentrification mm-hmm. idea, too, um, because, you know, somebody was talking to me about it, I'm like, well, that's kind of how we make money. <laughs> But I don't think it. I don't think it's bad. Be uh, for, for in 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 every instance because it does. If you need to raise the the living standards of a of an area and and allow people to not take advantage of other people, you know, it it's 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 important. So well, and
2: and all these HUD programs, uh, housing, urban development programs, and stuff. They basically disrespect working poor people.
1: They do. They say,
2: you know, you don't deserve to live around the beauty. In a nice house. We're going to rip it all out and put in plastic windows and plastic siding and plastic floors and plastic porches and all this kind of crap. And in fact, we can rehab historic worker houses that make wonderful homes for working poor families and make them as much a part of the neighborhood as anyone else. If we tear down all the worker houses and build McMansions in these historic neighborhoods, we are taking away the one reason I raise my kids in the central city neighborhoods is for the diversity, both ethnically and economically. It benefited my children immensely to the point where they drive by every house with their kids and go, well, that's, a, that's an early tutor revival. You know? <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: so um, how can our listeners contact you?
2: Well, my, uh, my email is yapperman, Y-A-P-P-E-R-M-A-N. I don't have a cape, but it's okay. yapperman, at MSN, <laughs> yapperman at msn.com. My website is bobyap.com B-O-B-Y-A-P-P.com. And you can see all the classes at the Belvedere okay. School on there and see all the different consulting things I do there. Um, our inn is the Belvedere Inn, and it is BelvedereInnHannibal.com. Okay. Um, uh, you can get my books uh, about your house. It was my first book. You can get that on Amazon. Uh, you can get the uh, window Standards on Amazon. Um, and that's basically how you get in,
1: in touch okay. with you. Well, very good. Well, thank you so much for for joining me today. I enjoyed our talk.
2: It was my absolute pleasure. Thank you for doing this. It's so important.
0: Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Practical Preservation Podcast. The resources discussed during this episode are on our website at practicalpreservationservices.com forward slash podcast. If you received value from this episode and know someone else that will get value from it as well, please share it with them. Join us next week for another episode of the Practical Preservation Podcast. For more information on restoring your historic home, visit practicalpreservationservices.com.